0: Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life.
1: Today, we have a special guest. He was the most wanted hacker in the world, but today he is an author, speaker, and businessman helping companies combat cyber attacks. CEO of Mitnick Security, Kevin Mitnick. Join us as we cover the topic of social engineering with one of the greats in the field.
2: Hey, Drew! Great to be on your show.
0: Uh, it's, it's so good to have you here, Kevin. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fanboy here for a second because, kind of. um, you know, back back when I was first getting into this industry, I was originally gonna go into machine learning, and then a few things caught my eyes in cybersecurity, and I think. Uh, the art of intrusion, the art of deception, and ghosts in the wires. Reading those three books uh, really motivated me to be like, this stuff is really cool, and this is what I want to do as a profession. And I think it was, you know, one of my career highlights when I actually got to work for you, Kevin. Um, just as like, I was like, oh my god, I made it. So, uh, you know, big fan of yours. I've always enjoyed uh, having you around. I'm really happy that you're you're taking the time to talk to us today. Um, why don't you, in, in your own words, can you give us a Introduction.
2: Who are you? Yeah, well, uh, just an ordinary guy, the next door neighbor. No, but uh, well, <laughs> great doing this with you, Chris. I mean, it was it was awesome working with you. You, you did an amazing job on our on our work that we did together. So uh, I still remember. And you too, Drew. We worked together as well. So always fun. That was actually one of the more exciting uh, uh, work projects I had because it was more from a physical sense. But. Um, myself, so I got involved in hacking, really for my love of magic, so as a kid, I was fascinated with magic, and uh, I met this kid in high school who could uh, that was involved in phone freaking, and uh, he kind of showed me what magic he can do with the telephone system, and I just go, "This is really super cool and uh, and then you know from from there, I got involved really heavy into the phone freaking side and getting an understanding of the phone networks, telephony, all the different switching um and I was also a prankster, so I loved doing things like changing people's class of service and the phone switch to like a prison payphone and this sort of thing. But uh, this was really, this was, yeah, it, it was awesome, man. I'd change a friend's home phone to a, a payphone, so please least deposit 25 cents. And then they'd call me, change it back, change it back, I'm going to get grounded. And I'd change it to a prison phone collect calls only. So I just loved the pranksterism. And it was kind of, you know, when you have control of the phone systems, it was kind of like you could do magic right you could do you could pull all these magic tricks with the with the telephone network because i was essentially in control so in high school when i got into this i met this other kid and i remember going up to the payphone in the high, uh, in in high school you know and uh, this kid was like calling the phone company and pretending to be a phone company employee and basically talking them out of everything getting them to do things on you know pretending to be like a phone company technician and I was going like, what the hell is this kid doing? So I struck up a friendship with this guy. And uh, this is where I learned all about social engineering. And this is where I really learned when you understand the terminology, the lingo, and uh, how the business works, how it's really easy to impersonate an insider. So this is kind of was my foot in the door into social engineering. It was really by social engineering, the phone companies back in the days. And this is I lived in L.A. back then. It was Pacific Bell. It was general telephone. And I got so adept at it that that became my expertise, if you will, being able to do pretexting over the telephone and basically talk anybody out of anything. Uh, And uh, and I remember, you know, hacking things like, for example, I was able to hack into an ongoing conversation at the NSA because I was able to get command of the switch in Laurel, Maryland through pretexting. I was able to get the dial up. And then through the dial-up back in those days to get switch access, you didn't even need credentials. You could go, you just needed to know the phone number. It was security through obscurity. So this is kind of how I got involved, right? And then as the phone company became more mature and they were switching to electronic, electronic switching systems from electromechanical, I wanted to become more adept at getting into phone company computer systems so I could have more control. And then what I actually set out as a goal was to compromise every phone company in the United States, and uh, what I ended up doing.
0: Uh, how far did you get? I
2: got pre- well. I got pretty far. Like I got into all the majors, like all the major cities: uh, New York, uh, Colorado, uh, Texas, uh, you know, Florida, Georgia, of course, California, Nevada. So I didn't really target the rural companies, but uh, all the majors: U.S. West, Pacific Bell. Um, cp and e. And my goal, if you will, it was kind of like, uh, yeah, it was kind of these goals I set out was to get switch access, which would give me full control of uh, some of their switches and some of their major areas for all these different phone companies around the United States. And I did. I did. I, I, I was able to get full control of tons of different switches um, when I was uh, doing that back in those years. So,
0: and Kevin, yeah. I, one one quick question there, because I know a lot of the a lot of the folks that are listening probably don't have context on what phone freaking is. Can you spend a few few seconds talking about like what what were you actually doing there? How did it work?
2: Well, you know, phone freaking to me is kind of like the predecessor to hacking, and what my uh, interest was at the time was getting. Well, phone freaking is really exploring the telephone network, right? And you have different types of you know you know skill levels in that area where people just get on conferences and they talk to each other. And then you get to the more of the, you know, technical nature of uh, phone freaking, where you're actually trying to exploit systems to gain control of, of the phone network, so to speak. So my goal at the time was to pull pranks. You know, I was a teenager in high school, and I wanted to be able to manipulate people's telephone service really for fun. And, uh, and that's how I started. And then eventually, when I set these goals for myself, uh, you know, and these milestones, of compromising you know, all the different uh, Bell operating companies in the United States, you know, that's where I got more into the computer hacking side. So phone freaking, if you remember, that's kind of a, uh, you know, I heard, I know you, Chris, you know, Captain Crunch, right? And these guys, Steve Wozniak. Yep. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. if, you have the, if you have the whistle.
2: Actually, uh, uh, a mutual friend, Valerie Tom uh, Thomas, sent me one for my birthday. like about oh, three three nice. ago. So I actually have... The real whistle, which is awesome, which That's I awesome. never had. But um, but phone freaking is really, to me, it was exploring the telephone system. It was being able to take control and manipulate the system and doing things that you're not supposed to be able to do. Like back when I started, like they had phone company test lines, like loop around. So you can call on one number. You can have a friend call in another. And the loop around would join the conversation. And you wouldn't have to give out your phone number to the other party. You know, and then there was things back in the 70s, the 1970s, probably before your time, that was cool at the time was A&I, where you can call a telephone, uh, I mean, a special number that only phone company texts knew, and get, and it would get to read back the number you're calling from. So, of course, the holy grail of phone freaking was being able to pop in on somebody's call, you know, and I did that in high school through what they call, uh, you know, manipulating BLV, busy line verification trunks, and being able to call certain numbers within the phone company. Who had access to what they called TSPS at the time, and being able to drop in on a friend's call. So a friend is in the middle of a phone call, and you drop in. Oh, hey Chris, how you doing today? You know, and uh, <laughs> just messing with people's heads. It wasn't about, it wasn't about like wiretapping because you wanted to, you know, get private mm-hmm. information. It was all about freaking your friends out. So that's kind of how I got started, and all of this computer hacking was from the magic to the phone freaking, and then to the real hacking.
0: I think that's the, for anybody that's listening, if you want to hear a more complete story behind that, you know, that, that is what Ghosts in the Wires covers, right? Like that's kind oh, of yeah. whole from, from beginning to, and that, that, so if you've, if you've seen the movie, catch me if you can, this is like a similar kind of like deception and, and all this stuff. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, Yeah. For, for point of reference, it's the same sort of kind of shenanigans at large kind of across the board. And it's really, really interesting. But that's only one of your books, and you have four of them. Um, Which one was your favorite to work on?
2: Ghost of the Wires. Actually, what's crazy is, you know, since I've been doing this, you know, since the late 70s, when we finished the manuscript, actually, the manuscript was 100 pages longer than was contracted. So, fortunately, Little Brown, the publisher, allowed it to go to publication. Because don't forget, you had another 100 pages. That's extra cost, right? And I thought we're going to have to go back and remove 100 pages. It almost happened. But fortunately, they let us keep all the pages in. And when I read the manuscript, I go, man, I did a lot of shit. I'm lucky I only got five years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hack after hack after hack after hack. To me, when you're thinking about it, you know, you don't wrap your mind around all the stuff, right? And uh, but when you read it in a 400 page manuscript, you go, oh my God. I was really out of control.
0: (laughs) I don't, I think somebody doing that level of stuff today would be in a far, far worse situation. I mean, because you're kind of on the forefront of like, I I feel like you were were one of the first people to actually be like, hey, we need to figure out how to address this sort of abuse because it's somewhat unprecedented because we have computer systems coming online. We have to have a better way to actually tamp down this because you know, law enforcement is really fearful of this, right? Because it's like, when you know how to do these things at a technological level, you can really wreak havoc if you're a bad actor. So you kind of came in and almost set the standard, yeah. of like, okay, <laughs> we got to find a way to deal with this guy. And that, and now, yeah, and now you have the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and, and you see what, what happens with, with that. Um, yeah.
2: Well, don't forget, they uh, they actually, I think, passed the original CFAA because of me. I was one of the reasons in the legislative system. I don't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, we've, we've talked
0: about that a few times. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I mean, again, as we said, like in previous episodes before, AT and T, one of the senators' uh, sons or Congress member's sons was a lobbyist for them. That Congress member went and became a lobbyist for AT and T afterwards. Like that. That's how that worked out. So. You know they definitely had influence in that, and they probably didn't like Kevin coming around and owning their network.
2: AT and T was the other side. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, like one of the one of the stories uh, that I left out of the book, I think it's left out of the book. I I don't remember all four hundred pages today, but uh, was doing a pretext fund attack against AT and T and getting access to their development switch uh, systems for what they called SCCS. SCCS was a a, a modified Unix, uh, well, modified modified version of Unix that ran in all the Bell operating ESS switches, you know, throughout the world. And uh, my thought is, hey, if I can get access to the development systems, I could place in a backdoor, which would get distributed to all the switches if I wanted to, or I could just grab the source code, and myself and some you know cohorts of mine could analyze it for bugs. And we did find about three to four bugs. That was really cool. That at t never knew about. We never reported it. You know, we weren't interested in disclosure at the time. <laughs> so I remember I got hacked.
0: You didn't go to their Hacker One page?
2: Yeah, no, no, Hacker One page. Hacker one Sorry. Page. Yeah, no, 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 that didn't happen. <laughs> so I remember, you know, because I went, you know, I went after, like, when I was involved in hacking, I went after looking for day right back in the day. So I would target the researchers that were finding it, and I would target the companies. They, and like Sun Microsystems, for example, that that was the big deal back in my day. You know, it was SunOS. I don't know if you go far that far back, Drew, but SunOS was the favorite OS. And I remember I I hacked Swan, Sun's wide area network, in an effort to get access to where do they keep all the zero day? And it happened that they kept it on a server called Elmer. And uh, basically, it was all in one place. There was two guys that were working for Sun on their security team, Brad Powell and Dan Farmer. Uh, you probably heard of those names. And, uh, and it was just really me against those guys, you know, trying to compromise everything in Swan because back in the day, everything was the whole, you know, pretty much the internet that I knew it was almost all, all pretty much, uh, Sunos and Solaris. Uh, much different than it is today. This is, don't forget this, you know, when I was a black cat, this was before 95. I was busted on <clears> Valentine's Day, 1995. So you're talking about, a time, a place in time where the arpanet was being kind of converted over to the internet. So it was really the arpanet at the time and everything was sun off, everything was deck tops, 20, vms and this sort of thing, much different than we see today.
0: So Kevin you've you've mentioned it a few times this notion of pretexting and a big kind of uh, one of the tools that you often reach for is social engineering and I think you know that that term is what we call it now but it's it's really just like how do you lie to people in a way that makes them trust you give you information stuff like that and this is kind of this is a big part of what what you do now especially with you no know, no know before with the various kind of like the demonstrations that you you give off stuff like that pretend that we have no idea what this is what is social engineering and how should people think about it
2: it's really using manipulation, influence, and deception to persuade someone to, you know, relieve, uh, give you information or to do an action item. It's really that simple. So basically, in my mindset is, people will release information if a, a certain set of conditions exist, right? So how can I create those, how can I set those conditions where they do it, right? And a lot of it went into, when I was learning about pretexting, is again, remember I mentioned about terminology and lingo and understanding the company well. That's what makes you a successful pretexter is really knowing your target. Now, it's kind of like that Sun Tzu, uh, know thyself, know thy target, be, be victorious. And a lot of it went into really analyzing who the target is, who the people are there, and then who has access to the information that you want. And then what conditions have to exist for that person to release that information to you. How are you going to deceive that person into a course of action? So that's really really what it is with uh, pretexting. Phishing is a little bit different. The downside of phishing, which is extremely successful today, but there is a downside, is people have time to think about how to respond because it's in an email, right? So you have time to, you can put that off. You can respond to it right away. You can think about it. When you're receiving a telephone call, it requires you as the victim to think quickly on your feet. And to respond immediately. And that's where the attacker has a really distinct advantage because they can create a situation or story uh, of urgency is a good one with, or with authority using all these, you know, principles of influence, so to speak, to really be persuasive. And they could even do a hybrid attack where you, you're you using email and you're using uh, pretexting at the same time. Send the person email, then you follow it up with a quick phone call. Hey, you know, um, I think, uh, I, I, I think that's used today. At least I use it when we're doing social engineering assessments. But I think a lot of people out there are more focused on the phishing side, which is understandable because that's what the bad actors use, because it'd be quite difficult for somebody in China or Russia to call up somebody here in the United States without a with having a good American accent.
0: <laughs> Before engaging in anything serious, have them say a shibboleth. This is, this is kind of interesting as well, because... As somebody that deals with a lot of phishing attempts, um, you know what the most successful phishing attempt that I see now is? And really, it's you would see it, I've, I've seen it for a number of years now, um, and it's an email that goes to an executive assistant or somebody that is close to an executive but not directing the position of power, and it's from that executive saying, hey, send me your phone number, I have something really urgent real quick. Like, I need you to get back to me. Because I think, Kevin, one of the things that you, you highlighted there that is really a, um, an advantage to have on the attacker side is that urgency, right? That sense of urgency of like, hey, I need you to do this now. It kind of like short circuits your brand. Like, oh, man, defer to authority, have to do this, got to do it now, not really getting into that critical thinking cycle. And that reminds me, Drew, of one of the recommendations that you had for what, ha- what should you do if you get compromised And your suggestion was
1: if you get a point of like an email that is going to like really stress out your day, make a cup of coffee, make a cup of tea. Right. And you go and you have this break where you can actually process and think. Do that before you call the person, even if they tell you to call you like immediately. Right. Do that. Ground yourself and then proceed with that phone call because you will be a lot less likely to make, uh, you know, uh, you'll have a few seconds to think about some things, piece some things into your head before you're making that call. And hopefully before, you know, you're making that big mistake of actually falling for this type of uh, attack. And if you can just do that, take a break. It doesn't have to be making it. Maybe you don't drink coffee or tea, right? Just get up and do something for a few moments and then come respond or, you know, uh, look them up in the company email or directory and call one of their numbers that they have listed there, right? If they're not listed there, well, maybe maybe this is an attack that you're facing right now. Right?
0: Yeah, because that that really is so effective. Uh, like, like the one one thing to take away here too, to our listeners is that sense of urgency. Anytime that there is a party that you don't entirely trust or maybe you don't really know who they are or they've reached out out of the blue and they're they're hitting you with a sense of urgency, you should always be skeptical because that sense of urgency is a really good way to part people with sensitive information that they shouldn't be releasing. Um, mm-hmm. and and so there's, there's all sorts of crazy social engineering things that you have done, Kevin. But I, I have to imagine that you have some favorites. What are your what are your if you wanted to pick like the top one or two of all the times that you've been in a position social engineering information out of somebody that you can share. What sticks out to you? What are, What are the best times?
2: I think one of my favorite stories, and it wasn't Ghost in the Wires, was when I was targeting this researcher named Neil Clift, who lived in the UK, who, by the way, went to go work for Microsoft. I think he's retired now. Anyway, this 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 guy was a brilliant researcher. He went to a University of Leeds, and I learned about him when I was in Digital Equipment's EasyNet. EasyNet is their network. You know, is their you know worldwide network and i saw that he was sending these zero the zero days to some of the developers in the vms development group and that's where i learned about this guy and this guy wasn't just sending one bug he was like sending like one bug every every other day and i go oh this guy this guy would be a great source of zero day but i don't want to i wanted to figure out a way where i get the O day but deck doesn't get it you know which is quite a, a twi- quite a difficult <laughs> task so the first thing I did, and this guy, this guy's a hard target because he, this guy already knew, because I uh, he already knew that I was after him, or that I wanted to compromise him. So he already had that uh, foreknowledge, and and this guy lived in the UK at the time in Stockport, England, and the first thing I had to do was work out where he lived and what his phone numbers were, and it was quite difficult because it was a it was a non published number. They call it X directory in the UK, but with my United States phone-freaking experience and knowledge, I was thinking that also in the UK, it was going to be similar. So it took me like two, three hours to work out who I, you know, what were the numbers directly to the departments that would have the data, which would have the number that I was looking for. And the approach I took was I was a new tech out in the field, and I was working at the service address because I was able to get his address. I just needed to know the, the, the bridge box that was assigned to his residence and the cable and pairs that were going to be assigned to this particular individual. I wasn't even asking for anything confidential like the phone number. So I first called one department to get that data. And once I had that data, I had the cable pair, cable and pair running into that residence. Then I was able to call a different person in the same department and just simply ask them what number is assigned to this cable and pair. So the first party had no idea what information I was after, but I'd had enough details to now be very persuasive to convince the second party that I was legit and an insider because who else would know the cable and pair to the to the residents. And so mm-hmm. so you know, I waited until, you know, this guy would be at work. I called both numbers, one number just rang out, the other one into one into modem breath and I go, "Oh, this is awesome. You know, is this guy going to be foolish enough where you know, I could potentially dial into the system. So it turned out it, he, he had a VMS, uh, I think it was VMS four or five. Uh, and unfortunately he was smart enough to put a system password. So basically back in those days, you'd have to put in, it would just beep at you and you'd have to put in the system password to get the login prompt. So one thing I was thinking about doing was essentially call forwarding that number to a number that was under my control. It was, imagine today if you could take over DNS, well, back in the days of dial-up, well, I could take over DNS because I could call forward anything anywhere I wanted and, re- and do redirection. So I thought of mm-hmm. that attack, and uh, it was it was quite difficult because again, I'm dealing with a different country. I'm in the UK, so then I, I I settled on, you know, doing some more research, and I realized that some of the bug reports that this guy was sending to DEC was from a university called uh, I, I forgot the name of it, maybe University of uh, uh, Leicester or something like that. Anyway, they had the system called HiCom H I C O M, and I noticed he was sending the bug reports from that system. So then my then my obviously my target became this university system, and I was able to compromise it. And it was like hitting the jackpot because I was able to get uh, in the VMS operating system. They have a privilege called SepRiv. It's kind of like root in Linux or wheel in Tops twenty, and I was able to get, gain full control of this VMS system. And I don't think this was through social engineering. I think it was through a technical exploit, but I'm trying to, it's hard to remember that far back, but in any event, so what I did is I monitored this guy's communications with DEC, and I knew that you know he really coveted a job with Digital Equipment Corporation, and I knew he respected this guy named Daryl Piper. Daryl Piper was one of the VMS developers, and he really... Had a liking for this guy. And this is all the intel and in the OSINT that I did over time to get these facts. So what I ended up doing is since I had complete privileged access to that machine, well, I could control the mail. You right? So I basically modified the mail sender. So whenever he would send an email out to DEC, it would actually get redirected to a system over at USC in Los Angeles, to a system I compromised there. And whenever I wanted to send an email to Neil, well, I was on the system, so I, I wrote—I just wrote a very simple piece of code where I was able to just send him an email from the system, but spoof anything I wanted. Right? It wasn't—it wasn't like doing it through SMTP. It was just doing it directly with the VMS mail program. So now I had the capability to intercept what he was sending out, and I had the ability to send in anything and make it appear wherever I wanted it to appear from. So this is where Kaitlyn came in—the pretext—and I didn't think this was going to work. As I sent him an email from his contact at deck, a guy named Dave Hutchins saying saying to Neil, hey Neil, uh Daryl Piper reached out me for me from the VMS development team, and they're actually lifting the job freeze at deck. they want to potentially consider you know having you come aboard. And I was wondering if it'd be okay to give me your email address uh or give uh your email address to Daryl. And of course, this guy, sure, you know, so did that. You know, now I'm coming in as Daryl and we're talking. I'm thanking him so much for all the bugs that he's been sending Dave and that we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, when a bug comes in, what we end up doing is we send it to all these different engineers and we really never organized everything. So one of the things I'm doing at DEC is I'm creating a database uh, where all the engineers could access a single database where all your pretty much where all the bug reports are coming in, not only from you, but from others. And uh, one of the things I've been having a really tough time doing was getting all the different bug reports from all these engineers. So what I was so what I was trying to get Neil to do was send me all the bug reports that he did all from today and all the way in the past. So I'd have everything right. And uh, I, di- I didn't think it was going to work. And <clears throat> this was going on on a long conversation it was kind of a long con. And during this whole thing that we're in this conversation, I bring out, I said, hey, we, we got a problem. We, we, you know, I know this Mitnick guy is after you and he's going to try to compromise you. I really think to have secure communications, we should exchange PGP keys, right? Like, trying to you know, gain trust and credibility, right? <laughs> and so we did that. And then to even g- gain more trust and credibility with this guy, because this guy's a security engineer, he knows about social engineering, this guy should be really on the ball, right? So I decided... I was going to take the chance of burning one of my exploits, one of my zero days that Neil did not know about in the VMS OS that, um, that I shared with him. I said, listen, uh, we don't have an official NDA right now, but I'm going to share some, you know, some of the bug reports that came into us that you might be interested in taking a look at. It's really, it's really extremely clever. You know, do I have your word? You know, we'd be going back and forth. You know, this wouldn't be one email. It'd be lots of emails. Oh, yeah, he assured me that he'll keep it private. I went ahead and sent it to him, the exploit code, right, with a write-up of how it worked, and immediately gained his trust and credibility. So then I reminded him like a week later, I said, hey, when you have a chance, Neil, can you please, you know, can you resend these particular bugs that you reported? I gave him two or three. So I got him, so I, I wanted to get him in the pattern of sending me information that I was requesting because this is an influence technique, you know, you know, Called commitment and consistency, where if you get somebody in the pattern of doing something, it's more likely on the next ask they're gonna fall, fall through with it. Uh, so, you know, what I did is I just got them in the pattern two or three times of giving me one, two, three bugs, one, two, three bugs. And then about on the fourth time, I, I said, Neil, rather than just give me a piecemealing it to me, can you just send me your entire database? And uh, within a day, so the entire <laughs> His entire database of all the zero days that he's compiled over all the years he's been a security researcher. So wow. what was nice is a lot of those bugs were patched by, by DEC. Now, DEC wasn't able to get those all patched in a reasonable period of time. So it was kind of my tool chest to use to go after different systems. And I think that that pretext or that social engineering attack, it, It it was over a long period of time. It was against a target that should have definitely known better, right? So this is a security researcher who already knew I was trying to target him. He was already on the ball. You know, he he works in VMS research type of thing as a hobby. And, uh, I had to set up all these circumstances. And of course, always the lure was, Hey, if you cooperate with us, we might be able to bring you in as an employee of deck, you know, and that's kind of the, uh, I'd say one of the most uh, interesting social engineering attacks that I've done. So I got everything I wanted. So the crazy thing is,
0: that's, that's is, so is years
2: later, <laughs> my uh, former girlfriend Darcy went to go work at Microsoft and she actually bumped into Neil Clift. And uh, I happened to be uh, in Seattle for a book signing like a month later. So we all had lunch together, you know, Neil, um, the guy who developed uh, uh, Windows, you know, VMS, uh, God, I can't remember his name, famous guy, uh, Dave something, not Cantor. Um, anyway, it escapes me. Anyway, we're all having lunch together. And this is where I say, hey, man, I said, I, I, I'm sorry I messed with you, you know, and uh, you know, uh, hey, it's, you know, it's been years ago, because it was years ago at that time. So I made an apology. I tried to make an amends. He was still pissed, of course. But
0: hopefully, I'm um, uh, sure <laughs> oh, I will be yeah. too. Yo, <laughs> no, you got you got a security engineer, and you went the long con.
2: But hey, I bought him lunch. I said, "Hey, man, you know it wasn't personal for me. I know it was personal for you. I just wanted the I just wanted the, the I just wanted the code, you know. So it was a bad choice. Good. I made it back in my day. I hope. I, and today, you know, we talk sometimes on Twitter. So I think it. I I think is uh." his level of anger has diminished over the last 30 years. So,
0: I mean, it's just, that's such a, that's such an in-depth chain, right? Like, um, and I think that you talking about that and yeah, it's over, it's over a period of time and like you're, you're getting the pretext and you're, you're kind of getting building trust over time. I think that, that really reinforces to me, you know, anytime that I'm, trying to educate people about security or, or the, the best way to handle corporate security or what to think about in your job, stuff like that. You know, what what's, what's the thing that ev- everyone always says is the human is the weakest link. And it's, tr- yeah, it's, it's true. It, it's, it's, and it's, it's through no faults uh, because it's not, nobody is perfect. You can even go after a security engineer who knows they're coming for you and you, as so long as you play your cards right. I mean, Grant, like, look, you're a pro. You knew what you were doing, and you knew exactly how to target this particular individual, but you better believe that everybody's susceptible to that. Like, there may be ways that you can kind of check your work a little bit better today. Like, maybe you could do some sort of -of out-of-band verification or something, but, you know, social engineering works, and it works well, and it will continue to work well.
2: Yeah, the whole idea was getting Neil to take a mental shortcut, right? By doing the allure, allure of a potential job opportunity with deck, by gaining trust and giving them an unpublished zero day. This is all done, you know, to frame the attack in, in, a, in a certain way to gain that trust and credibility, uh, to actually, you know, be successful. So it was actually well thought out and it wasn't just like an off the cuff that you see today, Chris, where you see you know, on a single, the first email contains the fish, you know, you know, please, please click this link to log in because your applications aren't going to work, you know, something like that. The frame is there, meaning the frame is the most, one of the most important, uh, aspects of social engineering. That's how you're framing the attack. Like for example, on a social engineering attack, the, the bad actor wants to frame it in such a way that the victim is going to lose some access to something. Or some benefit unless they comply, unless they follow through with the email, rather than saying, hey, you won, you know, a $50 Starbucks card, click here to claim. You know, people will do more to avoid a loss than to realize a game. So, you know, yeah, and there's, there's all these different tactics and mm-hmm. ideas that you can use from the methods of influence to persuade targets to comply. And that's what it's about. I think the truly successful social engineering attacks is where the bad actors Take enough time to do their reconnaissance in such a way to know the company and to know the know their target. Once they do that, you know, then they work on well. What can they do to build trust and credibility, and that sort of thing? I'm working on a am working on a an pen test right now, and I'm I, right now in the development of that. It's a company that's on the second round, uh, of you know doing it again, as you know. And now they're more now, now they're smarter. They understand the trade craft. And now it's still trying to figure out a way to find a weakness in that armor. And a lot of that has to do with the social engineering tradecraft side.
1: Yeah, these long-term engagements on the private sector side, if you do them well enough, uh, you know, some some people feel hurt afterwards. Uh, you know, I've had people say, you know, I thought, I thought you were my friend <laughs> because we were on an engagement for like a few months.
0: <laughs> and we would go
1: eat lunch with this person. We went and got beers with like this person and their like coworkers because they thought we were a coworker as well. And after the engagement, they're like, "I thought you were my friend." Yeah. I was like, "You know what happened yeah. is well.
2: there's one company I tested, uh, a retail business. I, I can't, obviously can't mention who it is, but they're very well known. And uh, you know, after I delivered the uh, pen testing report, by the way, on the guy's desktop." which is my favorite tactic to do when I'm doing these pen testing assignments. After I delivered it, I got, you know, he scheduled a call with me and he was super pissed. He goes, I hired you to really look for major vulnerabilities and stuff. And uh, I get that, but you went over and beyond. And because of that, I have to spend my budget and my time fixing these things. He was really pissed off. He, he was actually criticizing us for finding too much, finding too many problems. I think you guys know my modus um, operandi. I'm very persistent, and I don't give up until I have everything. I think you, because you guys mm-hmm. worked with me mm-hmm. before. So uh, in this case, it kind of backfired, you know, because I think it's actually doing the, the client a service um, by, you know, finding everything that we possibly can under the sun. But this particular case, he was upset, and I was like taken aback. I go, "That's what you hired me for." And uh, fortunately, they went on to hire uh, my company two or three times in the future. But he was upset because of the work, because, um, you know, now he has knowledge of these bugs and these problems. And if he doesn't fix it and the company gets hacked, guess who can get sued? They can get sued. So it created a lot of work and it cost <laughs> a lot of money to fix the problems.
0: It is one of the hairier parts of working in security consulting though, right? Because the I I think there's there's gonna be the base level of technical competence. You're gonna have to be able to demonstrate your ability to, you know, find vulnerabilities, do exploits, get access to data, all that stuff. But then like the next level is really especially when you're really good at the technical part of it, how do you deliver it in such a way that it's not gonna ruin their day? Because in a lot of these cases, yeah. The report that you deliver actually has a lot of stuff in it that's going to, that's going to, you know, working in security, when you hear about like, Oh, there's like 20 vulnerabilities in this thing. You're just like, yeah, everything's vulnerable. Yeah. I get it. But when you're not used to seeing that sort of information or seeing that sort of report, especially about your own infrastructure or software or people or whatever, it can be pretty galling and it can be pretty, you know, uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. I, I remember uh, I had a team working with a major financial institution and uh, it, you know, my favorite French pen tester. I won't mention his name, but you know who he is. Mm-hmm. So and this mm-hmm. company was super sensitive, extremely sensitive because uh, of um, the position they had in the financial community. So I don't know, like a week into the pen test, he found a directory traversal bug, and it was able to actually recover all the crypto keys that this company used through not only their own technology, but all their vendors. And it was... Uh, Oh, and, no. and what I did is, you know, and I, I sent the client, you know, an email said, hey, click here for a surprise. Right. Because I have. A-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever click on an email from Kevin Mitnick that says click here for a surprise. None of our listeners oh, should ever do that. Oh, oh I, guess I got
2: a call and I got yelled at from the client because when he clicked on the, you know, it just exploited the director traversal traversal uh, vulnerability and all their crypto keys popped, all the plain text keys. Right. And this company went ballistic you know, because they had no idea they had the vulnerability and they go, you sent this in, a, in an email, you know? I, yeah. Well, it, it's just like you're open for exploitation. You need to fix it immediately. I mean um, uh, but you know, so what I had to do in that particular case with that company is every time we found something serious, we actually have to get on you know, a call with, you know, even the CEO of the, of that particular company joined the call, And they'd have to give us permission to take the next step. So, you know, we'd have to expose where we are in the network and they knew where we were. And then before I could, you know, open up the next door, it was getting permission. It was kind of a hassle. Usually I don't like doing that. I like being able to go through all the open doors myself and then giving it them the final deliverable. But in that particular case, I freaked the client out. So I learned a lesson. Don't do that in the future. Don't freak your client mm-hmm. out, you know, because mm-hmm. they sometimes don't have the same sense of humor that you might have.
0: Well, I would I would actually venture bet and say most of the times they have a different sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> than, yeah. <laughs> than the folks doing the hacking. Uh, you we know, um, financial
2: firms, right? They don't they don't have a good sense. Yes, yeah,
0: especially especially <laughs> yeah. financial. The So you, you talked about your favorite time, but I, I what, what's the time that you've been caught do you have any any times where it's no. like, oh, man, you stepped into a trap or you got caught? Because it'd be great to hear, hear you know, one of those cases.
2: Well, the most interesting one was, again, against a, a, a similar financial organization. And this was on a physical pen test. Those are the most interesting ones to get caught on because you don't want to get caught on a physical test. Right, Drew? So. <laughs> uh,
1: no, <laughs> definitely don't. So
2: what had happened is in this organization, how I was able to get in was, you know, cloning hit cards. So uh, basically, I was able to um, this organization, uh, in, in this particular office location. They had the entire building, right? And um, the the lobby was uh, open to the public. And how I was initially able to, you know, clone the the first card uh, was, and this was through like one of those cheap Prox marks. So I had to get pretty close to the target. So this was actually done in the restroom because the restroom, anyone could get into the lobby, anyone could go into the restroom. So I'd hide out in the, in the stall. And when somebody, when I'd hear the door open, I'd go out of the stall and then stand up next to the urinal, right? And, you know, in hopes that this is going to be an employee, because in this particular organization, you didn't have many people from the uh, from the community or the public going in. It was pretty much all employees. And basically, it took a few tries, but I had to stand at the urinal. And the guy that's busy next to me, and you know when we're using urinal guys that we're staring straight ahead, we're not looking left or right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just the fact that you're even getting somebody to be next to you.
2: (laughs) Basically, I have this on like this, um, I had it in the laptop sleeve and I basically tried to get the laptop sleeve close enough to this guy's PID card that was on his hip without obviously creating some attention there because that'd be the wrong place to create any attention, obviously. So it took a few tries and I was able to get one read and it worked and was able to clone the card. And that's how I was able to get the initial hit card, uh, for the, uh, to get into this business. And then it was all about how can I get in after hours? So doing a ton of research and I, I found out, you know, what by calling the company, you know, trying to pitch other janitorial services. I found out who their current company is that was cleaning the offices in the evening hours. And then I was able to, um, Uh, find out the company, find out actually who was on the crew to clean that building, and actually getting their cell phone numbers. So how the pretext work is I waited to all the office people left, cleaning crew was in, I, you know, my my team and I is dressed in a suit, had fake business cards that were uh, for the company, you know, knocked on the, it was actually a door, it was a big window, knocked on there, held up my business card, told them I forgot something, um, And as soon as I opened up the one door, I was able to use my HID credential to open up the other. So immediately that the office, oh, this guy has to work here. He has a business card and he has a HID credential to open the door. So we were able to gain physical access. So basically on the first night I hired another, uh, I hired a team and one guy, I said, hey, go pick up a wireless access point at Fry's. And by the way, you know, one of your first, you know, uh, one of the first objectives is finding a place that you could plant that access device that's not going to be detected, and um, that's going to be in a place that where that's going to sit, and make sure you you know you configure a real strong key, because if I open up the client's network to obviously the world through Wi-Fi, I can get sued. So obviously we wanted to secure that and not have you know we didn't want to be the vulnerability. So. Went, went through all the offices, found the offices of the people that actually hired me in the security team. I'm actually at their desk photographing everything. I mean, uh, we were able to, you know, reboot. Uh, we found out who the admins were, we were able to uh, reboot their workstations, change the administration on their password on their local system, ac- local admin account, and then, you know, deploy our malware. You know, this is really basic at the time. This was in the days of rats rather than stuff like Cobalt Strike, you know which is a much better framework. And then the, the major target was the data center, getting into this data center. And this was actually through HID and uh, through a pin code. And remember, I mentioned that I st- installed, the implant, impl- <coughs> sorry, the, installed the implant on the admin's workstation. So there's time passing through here. It's not just consecutive you know, hours and days. So I waited until uh, I got a callback from that implant and then took time exploring their network on the inside and found their badge controller which was a hit badge controller and then i was able to dump out i was able to get admin rights because i had da domain admin i was able to get you know administrative rights on the badge control system and then i was able to dump out everybody's hit credential their badge the card id the facility code and also the ones that had assigned pins so then i didn't need to clone anybody's i just looked for the person who had the you know the guy that was. Uh, the head of IT, the IT director, and cloned his card. And I was, and the, and amazingly, the pin code was in plain text. So I decided, hey, we're going to go back the next day, but we're going to go in at twelve thirty lunchtime. We found the door that faces that's actually at the parking lot. You go through two glass doors, and you're right at the the, the door where the data center was, where the head reader was, and the pin to put in your pin code as well. And so what happened is the very next day. I go in, I open the door, I'm at the data center, I'm at the data center door, I have another operative that was with us going through the employee entrance as well, so she can get on that side. And all of a sudden, when I open the door, somebody's running, running towards the door from the hallway going, who are you? Who are you? I go, what the hell? And I run. I get, I, uh, I'm exit stage (laughs) left, man, (laughs) exit stage left. They go, what the fuck? You know, how how did they even know that something was going on? So then, unfortunately, the other person also was stopped because we had, you know, the HID credentials worked, but the but the artwork on the badge wasn't the best. So we made it look like an employee badge, but it had some defects in it, and they actually stopped her, you know, and go, who are you? Because they didn't recognize, you know. I work for such and such, but I work in this office, different state. You know, here's my HID credential. Here's my badge. And they actually seized the badge from her and were calling HQ to determine her identity. But she was able to get out, to walk away, you know, since she wasn't apprehended. So we're all to meet together and we're going like, what the hell happened? How did they figure this out? You know, I had to call the client, say, hey, this was us, because we certainly didn't want the cops called and to create an incident. So what I learned is remember the guy that I told to find uh, a good place to install that uh, wireless access point that's safe. Well, what this mm-hmm. guy did, unbelievably, I'm still pissed off today, is what this guy did is he decided to go under the desk where the database administrator's workstation was. I'm in- oh, <laughs> <God.
0: laughs>
2: plugging his workstation, plug in the access point and plug his, uh, plug the workstation's you know, Ethernet cable into the access point and plug it all in, assuming it was going to work the next day. So what happened, of course, the next day it didn't work, right? Because the DBA couldn't get on the network because they had, I think, a DHCP, you Now they had it authenticated. And um, they uh,
0: yeah. had
2: it authenticated. So they start investigating. They can't find any software issue. Then eventually they end up under the desk and they see the Velcroed access point. They go into red alert. Dude. They go into high DEFCON one alert. Yeah. So that's what happened. That's how we got caught. I, we didn't physically get caught, but we obviously had to tip the client. Hey, that was us, and that what, what blew the whole operation. But at the end of the day, then we have. The, I said, well, I had data center access anyway, and I brought a copy of Ghost in the Wires autographed to the IT people. I said, now, dear IT people of this company. It was great to be in your data center. Love, Kevin. And I had the book. And uh, <laughs> literally, I, I, I go, okay, I could show you. I could have gotten in very easy, you know, through the door. The door oh, yeah, yeah, sure, you can. We have a PIN controlled. We have a card controlled. There's no way you're going to get it. I said, okay, let's let's go over there. So we all go over there. I have their entire IT team people, their security people. And I just pass my hidden credential, put in the PIN code, and the door pops. They go, hey do You want to put the book in, or should I? <laughs> I mean, I was totally freaked out. So we got we got caught, but it was a good result. So um,
0: a very aggressive play, putting that uh, access point right on the, the guy's workstation. Uh,
2: I was like, how could you do such a thing? I meant obviously to find an unused network jack. You know, put it in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. You know, conceal it. Be, be, use clever tradecraft, and it just blew the entire operation. But there's one other quick story of one way I got caught with phone pretexting. You'll love this. So I'm hired uh, a company and they have many different offices, you know, around the United States, many different retail sales offices. So what my first goal was, was to call one of the retail offices to get the manager's name and the store number. Why did I want that? Is because I was going to use that information to call a different store. All right. To impersonate the manager in the store, but I needed the intel. So I call this store. I go, okay, hey, this is Greg, you know, Daniels over at IT and HQ. How you doing today? He goes, great. I said, hey, listen, um, what's your store number over there? And, and, and who's the manager? Because I don't have it on my list. He goes, who are you again? As soon as you hear those words, who are you again? That's not a good sign. That means there's some mm-hmm. suspicion. And I said, hey, Greg Daniels, IT over, you know, at HQ. He goes, well, I don't know who you are. I go, yeah, it's the first time meeting you. Very nice to meet you. And, you know, I've been here with the company for two years. I'm in the company directory. You can look me up, you know. And by the way, I'm only asking for public information. Who's the manager? What's the store number? I'm not asking for anything. You know, I'm not asking for your social security number. I mean, what's the big deal? He goes, well, you know, I don't trust people over the phone anymore. I go, why? What happened? He goes, well, I recently read this book by this guy named Mitnick called Art of Deception. And after reading the book, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> my, oh, shit, my book shot me in the foot. So I, of course I couldn't tell him who he was talking to. Uh, you know, that would have been fun. But of course I had to you know, remain in character so I don't blow the operation of calling the next door, which actually worked. And so I was shot down because the guy read my book. So that's, that's a crazy story.
0: So I think <laughs> That's your amazing. next book, then your next book, needs to be undoing that. To be like, actually, you should trust everybody. Sure. <laughs> trust everybody, especially if it's over the phone, especially if it's me. You should definitely trust it. Then, Super you know, cool. Undo it.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, I mean, it's just uh, it, it happens, right? You know, not every phone pretext works on the first call. You know, sometimes it. What you want to do is, as an attacker, set it up in such a way you don't burn the operation. You don't let the target know what you're trying to accomplish. Otherwise, they tip off everybody else. Mm. So you want to do it in baby steps mm. until you can tell, because you can tell in the conversation whether the person's going to cooperate or not. It's like a sixth sense. You could tell if somebody's hesitating. You could tell if they're asking you questions to verify. You could tell if they're cooperating. One of my favorite methods was using the reciprocity attack. Because I'd call a company, I'd call, I'd get a whole list of different you know, employee numbers and I'd call and say, hey, this is Bill in IT. I'm calling about that IT issue you had. Did you get it resolved? You know, and, you know, of course, most of them say, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I must I must have the wrong ticket. But, you know, literally, I'd say three out of 10, somebody had a computer issue or some problem that they reported. I'd call them and I'd discuss it with them because I need to close the ticket. Right. And I'd say, hey, is it working? You know, You know, I'd give suggestions about, you know, resolving the issue if it comes up in the future. And again, you're gaining trust. You're in, in, in your you're exploiting reciprocity because that person perceives that you're calling them to help them solve a problem. So they're gonna respond in like kind, right? They consider it a maybe a favor, right? So they're gonna respond in like kind. So that's where I go in and say, oh, by the way, while I have you on the phone, can you do X, Y, and Z? And that worked works extremely well. It did in, you know, and again, because it, it focuses on that, that influence tactic.
0: And I want to ask one other question here because we've spent all of this time. And if, if I wasn't thoroughly convinced that social engineering was going to compromise me someday, you know, I, I'm, I'm much closer now. But we so talked a lot about the exploiting things side. If you had to give people three tips to, t- to stay secure with respect to social engineering, what would you tell
2: them? Well, uh, let me think. I can think of more than three. But, you know, one thing is trust your gut. Because normally your gut instinct—I know this sounds ridiculous—is usually spot on, at least with mine. If something just doesn't, doesn't feel right in a phone call or an email, respect your gut. You know, trust but verify, as they say. Um, I think it's really important, and I think you know—you know this because of know before, is training training your users through adversary simulation, you know, through phishing simulations and getting them used to you know looking at the red flags of an email, for example, and getting them, you know, in a much better position to detect whether anything is suspicious. And it's, you know, to me, it's super simple. If you receive it, well, aside from business email compromise, because there's no links or attachments there, but anytime you receive any type of email or any message on Telegram or Facebook or Signal or anywhere that contains a link, obviously, or any email that contain, or any of those services where you can send attachments, that's when your, you know, your antennas need to go up and you need to, need to think, have more critical thinking of where is this coming from? Is it coming from somebody I trust? You know, um, you know, this could be potentially malicious attack. And, you, and again, like Drew said, you know, maybe not to spend the time to get a cup of coffee, but actually taking the time to actually think about it before you react and click on it and open up something. Right, I think that's what most people are into. People are busy in their daily work; they're not used to people compromising them, so they're they're clicky and they're opening stuff at a rapid pace. But actually, maybe slowing down a little bit. But only when those conditions exist, when there's an attachment or you have to click a link in anything, that's where you're likely going to be exploited. And of course, using a good state of the art EDR. Um, so you know, using something like CrowdStrike Falcon or Carbon Black. So if there's going to be any implant that's deployed, hopefully that will be you know, kind of that layered defense approach. Um, trying to think of, you know, it all has to do with training. You know, good security awareness training, good layer of defenses with, you know, for example, a good you know new new state of the art EDR, and actually getting people on the ball by actually training them. And I know there's a lot of phishing simulation. One thing we're lacking is pretext calls. You can't easily simulate that because AI isn't, hasn't evolved to the point where we could do real uh, pretext call AI simulations that I know of. So I think that's where there's still a, a gap that where people really need to be trained is when they receive a phone call, it might be somebody they're not expecting. It might be an attacker. It might not be a vendor. It might not be uh, that intercompany employee so that's why it's so important to have a policy where if somebody is calling an employee that that person call them back at a number that the employee looks up that they just don't accept the number that they're given. Now, what's funny about that is there's this call, site called listyourself.net and when when sometimes I have to do pretexting attacks, I could list my cell phone number as any company. So if you check if you check Google, you know, I'm listed as a Microsoft. If you put in Microsoft And my cell phone number, it comes up. So I get get, get calls all the time from people wanting tech support for Microsoft. And that is because, I'll tell you what happened, is Chris Hagnagny wanted me to participate in the social engineering um, CTF at DEF CON uh, several years ago. And he gave me the target of Microsoft. So this is where I set all this up. So I can convince a target, hey, just go into Google, type in Microsoft and my number. You'll see I'm Microsoft. You know that's a good that's a good way to raise trust and credibility. And even when I call people, it shows up on their call ID as Microsoft. So um, it was funny. So I was sitting in my hotel room and I had a friend visiting. You, I think you know him, uh, Chris Garland. I had Garland visiting, and he goes, "You know, Kevin, I want to, you know you're doing this uh, social engineering CTF. You're going to be calling Microsoft. You don't have permission because." You know, they don't know this is going to happen. Are you sure this is okay? You can't get in any trouble? So I go, hmm, maybe I should call my lawyer. Make sure, I'm sure sure everything's going to be okay. He's not going to care. (laughs) I call my attorney and I run it by him. I said, there's this contest in Vegas. You know, they gave me a company to, you know, do the social engineering CTF. I'm going to try to talk them out of information. You know, is that cool to do? You know, do you have any problem with that? He goes, Kevin? I go, yeah. He goes, are you fucking crazy? He goes, you don't have permission, and you're going to call up and deceive <laughs> Microsoft, who might have a few layers on staff of their of their proprietary information, which, by the way, is wire fraud. He goes, no, you're not doing it unless you get a letter from Microsoft. So, of course, I asked Chris for a letter. He could never get it. But um, that's what happened in that particular case. Is uh, I was uh, My attorney put the kabosh on that one. But I did all the prerequisite setup for that. To, to be be able to effectively impersonate a Microsoft employee and having the credibility of having me uh, listed as Microsoft in the yellow pages and white pages and that sort of thing. Well,
1: we're coming at the end of the episode. And uh, where can people find you, Kevin? Where can they find your books?
2: Well, it depends what year you're in. If it's the 90s, I'm not going to tell you that. No. <laughs> no, very <easily>. useful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mitnick security Mitnicksecurity.com, M-I-T-N-I-C-K, security.com. My favorite book is Ghost in the Wires because that was my memoir. I'm actually working on a a new book proposal. So hopefully that will be accepted. Very excited uh, about doing this new manuscript. Um, My past books are Art of Deception, um, Art Art of Intrusion, uh, Art of Invisibility, which is more of a privacy and security book. Um, So it's very easy to reach me. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I believe just Kevin Mitnick, very easy to find me on Twitter. Um, I pretty much use LinkedIn more than Twitter, by the way, because I prefer to be more with the business audience, but I'm not a hard guy to find. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's not like I'm hiding Not now anymore. anymore.
0: Or not, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> not a hard guy to find these days. Yeah,
2: <laughs> Not a hard guy. Yeah. Very easy to find me. Um, you know, emails on, on, on my website. Uh, Super simple.
0: The three takeaways for today's show are, one, social engineering has been around for decades and still is one of the most potent attacks for compromising sensitive information. Two, even when you're fully aware that you may be targeted, social engineering can still be successful. And three, defending yourself against social engineering requires awareness, technological protections and a bit of luck.
1: Social engineering, the attack that works still because there's no patch for humanity. We would like to thank Kevin Mitnick for sharing his knowledge and telling his stories on some of his exploits he's done. Make sure to check him out online. We'll have links to his book and to
0: his website in the podcast show note. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe.